If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. Dear gas prices, go take a hike. Toyota is the number one retail brand for electrified vehicles for 22 years. The Toyota hybrid lineup brings efficiency with power and savings with style. Not to mention top tech to help keep you connected. Plush premium interiors and the most advanced Toyota safety features. So, now you know who you're talking to. Toyota, the number one retail brand for electrified vehicles for 22 years. With a hybrid or electric vehicle built for every driver. Seriously, dear gas prices, do you really think you can stand in our way? Think again. Toyota hybrids. Find yours at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Based on manufacturer estimates, see why 2000 through 2021 sales. Welcome back into another edition of The Kickabout here on The Blue Room. I am your host, Rob Vera. I am joined this week by Matt Jones and Hannah Farrell. Uh, guys, how are you? How are things? Very good. Very good. Uh, this is the second time I've seen Hannah today. Obviously, we see each other every day now because we're doing Team Talk Radio together. But, um, you know, still a pleasure and still a pleasure to see you as well, Rob. So, yeah, looking forward to the oh, show. Thank you. Yeah, I... It's funny, uh, we were talking before the show started um, because Matt's got a glass, I think you got a glass of wine and, and he says he feels like Hickabout is the, the kind of the ultimate uh, drinking pod, like it's kind of become the, <laughs> the drinking podcast of, of the Blue Room. And, and- no, I think it's, the, it's the, the red wine, it's the drinking red wine podcast. Yeah, let's say the drinking one is mailbag, mailbag. beer, oh, beer I think you have a I think you have a beer, like a, a can of some kind when you're doing mail bag, yeah. <laughs> Although Les does have a glass of red wine, I recorded with him very, about midday, and he has a glass of red wine ready to go. So, <laughs> so what is it about? What is it about? Kick about then as a distinction? Because I I know what you're saying with mailbag. It's it's a drinking and for me occasionally a drinking and or drugs uh, type of, of podcast <laughs> recording. But what is it about kick about that is what you would call Matt? A, a red wine type of occasion. I think you bring a degree of sophistication to the to the occasion, Rob. <laughs> you know, with with your sultry American tones, the the, the topics oh, we dis- oh. you know the topics you discuss sometimes aren't very nuanced at all. But I feel like the ones when they are nuanced and are insightful, it probably goes a higher level than any other Blue Room show. So, mm-hmm. well, you know what? what why yeah, not? It, let's 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 get a drink in keeping with the mood. It almost sounded like you were kind of casting Patty Boylan dispersions on me there just a bit, but <laughs> I, no, I, I, I will, I will certainly take that. Uh, I'm certainly, I'm certainly can live with, with that. Um, uh, yeah. So occasionally we are sophisticated except for when we're not. And when we're not, we really aren't. Um, <laughs> so, well guys, uh, God, there's so much, I feel like, um, 
you know, it's only been a week since I did this podcast, but with these two straight kind of midweek games, I feel like there becomes this weird gulf in time where a lot can happen by the time we get on here. Uh, initially, I had uh, asked Hannah to, I asked Hannah to come back on and I uh, was going to reach out to you, Matt, because of, of the fact that you both, I know, had some pretty strong feelings about the uh, the uh, the very beginning of uh, the kind of girls gone wild esque red celebration that was happening um, and every all the impacts of that etc cetera, etc cetera. I'm gonna I want to put that to the side for now we're gonna get to that later because there, some time has passed I know we've talked about it a little bit you've, everyone's had some time to kind of chill with that a little bit let it marinate uh, and so on and and I do want to revisit that that topic. Uh, but I would be, I feel like because it just happened yesterday, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't start with Everton. I want to start with Everton, um, which as, as someone who hosts a very sophisticated podcast, I try to avoid doing until I absolutely have to sometimes, but Hey, I, I want to start with this and, and, uh, Hannah, I'll start with you, uh, to get a response to this, but we are three games back into the restart. And if you had told me, given the fixture list for these first three games, that we would have taken seven points from these three games, um, I really don't want to say bit your hand off that, that whole cannibalistic metaphor has always been weird to me, but I... I would have been very enthused. I would have been like, you know, like the the dog that humps your leg for seven points, you know, for three, you know, for these th- for given these three fixtures, whatever Great you want to call it. Yeah, I love the way I love the way I don't like this cannibalistic metaphor, but I'm gonna go. On, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring I'm gonna the, use dog the dog. Into bed, yeah. I don't know how it to convey. It is the sophistication. That's why we have red wine. Exactly. You're welcome. You're welcome. See, I'm trying to I'm trying to water down expectations, but no, I I, I if you had told me, given that we were going to be playing, uh, we were going to be playing um, the Reds, we were going to play uh, Norwich, and then we were going to play Leicester. If you had said to me, we're going to get four points from these three games, I would have probably taken that because I would have thought, look. Leicester in third, they've been struggling, but they're still in third. They're, you know, I don't even need to say anything about the Derby. We all kind of had an idea of how we felt like that would go. I think it obviously turned out better than we could have expected, but certainly, you know, we're still waiting on a win, and that's fine. But uh, the win yesterday is one of those wins where um, <laughs> there's plenty to say about how good or not good we looked uh, for long stretches, especially once we got uh, our, our two-goal lead. I think Leicester were comfortably the better side after that. Um, but at the same time, these were the sort of games where we really had seen over the last several years the inability of the manager to find a way to sort of nurse a, a result home given less than ideal circumstances in regards to everything from injury to uh, the kind of momentum the other team had gained. Um, we did at times certainly look shaky uh, in the second half, but yet uh, whether it was formational changes, etc., it did feel very much like we had a manager who found a way to sort of logically dissect what needed to be done. And uh, obviously the players uh, stepped up enough to be able to hold on in a circumstance like that. Uh, Hannah, I tweeted yesterday at that, at that juncture in the game that 
I, I know what Carlo is trying to do, uh, but this is a squad that we've talked about ad nauseum that never seems to be good when we have to divert from the quote plan. And whenever we have to divert from the plan and you ask a bunch of players, many of whom are very one dimensional to do different things and play in different formations. I, I, the remark I made was this is usually not something that works out well for us, but if, we're ever going to be able to do it and we need to be able to do it if we're going to be that kind of team that you got to only the only way you're going to learn to do it is by doing it and and so carlo made the changes and and we made it and we got the result and so i'm I'm less concerned about maybe how good we looked at times and more just happy with the fact that after three games and two very very good teams that we've played we've got seven points uh hannah what what are your takeaways from from yesterday's uh yesterday's game uh your general feelings anything that stood out to you how are you feeling about things well, going back to what you said before, that you was of um, bit somebody's hands off or however you wanted to phrase it, definitely because if you think back to it, like before, it's a dog humping okay. your leg for three months. Yes, <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to shy away from it. Dogs do that. I don't have a dog for that very reason. But go ahead. Okay, so many questions about that, but I'll continue. So <laughs> before lockdown, um, our last game was obviously the horror of Chelsea. So if you were to told me coming back, especially where we were all flapping about the fact that we didn't have, it didn't seem that we had any players who were fit at the beginning of June. Mm. I would have 100% bit your hands off for it. Um, and it is what you're saying there. I, I think it was um, Mike who tweeted about, like, I've seen this film before, where we went dead, like, flappy in the, um, the second half. And where it's we a, were. Very, a very Mike Diasha sort yeah, of Yeah, I've seen this film many times me. before. But it's He's true. Yeah. No, but it's true, isn't it? When we've lost any control, we completely lost the tempo. We all knew, like, right, this is what happens now. And once they, we won't come back from it, that's what happens. But it's sort of like now we've got to like understand that like he does know what he's doing. Carlo stood there all chills in his new suit, looking all slim and everything. Like he has got it completely under control. <laughs> like, and I think like some unsung heroes from yesterday. I actually said on this last week. Actually, I ripped into Tom saying he's a player who can't have a seven out of ten performance every game in the derby he did, but he was shite at Norwich. But then yesterday, I think he's a bit of an unsung hero. I don't think he got enough praise at all yesterday. It was great when he came on. When he came on, he was amazing. Well, not okay. He was great. Not going to go overboard. But he definitely, like, redeems himself in my book. And then, like, Dom as well. Like, he's, he's just boss. Like, he put such a shift in on his own. And, like, me and Matt were talking about this earlier. It was, like, last season Dom being left on his own to sort of do everything and he, all of them just showed so much and then obviously Keane who's just been the best player we've got for the past few games which yeah. is crazy to think here I think it was Carragher like praising him it just sounds so weird because he's not the player who we thought we'd be coming back from lockdown here and all this praise about but I just think it's, I feel very nice and positive. I was saying this at, at the beginning of the game last night, so I was sat there, like, two goals off, got our first penalty, and I was just sat there eating my hummus, like, this is dead chill. I enjoy watching us like this. It's been a long time since I've, like, been comfortably, like, enjoying a game, but then obviously I had a flappy 20 minutes in the second half. But, like, I feel like that today. I just feel like... I don't actually have anything I want to really moan about after yesterday. Yeah. Like, I feel quite content with things like and getting seven points i think so 
a statistic earlier. Oh, by the way, does anyone else notice that every single time that something happens in that game where Sky was popped the statistics up in the corner, we were either the best at something or the worst at something. We were always <laughs> at one end of every stat. Sounds <laughs> yeah. about right, yeah. Every, every time it came up, I was like, but when? I think it was like... What was it? Most goal, goals called from set pieces. I was like, Are you sure? Like, I didn't yeah. remember any of these stats of these <laughs> accumulators. But anyway, like, coming away from it, I just feel quite content, really. Yeah. I, I think it's quite a positive way to be in it. That's what I was going to say. I saw the table or something earlier, and it's like the most points picked up this year or something and we're like very high up or the most gate something like that something on to Carlo anyway the fourth yeah yeah and it just if you would have told us that in December do you know what I mean so every time I want to have a mood I'm just going to go back to December Hannah and think about how the world's a better place Ish. Well, in football terms, yeah. <laughs> I think on the game, I think it's it's one for me that's ultimately conditioned by those first fifteen minutes because I think if if Leicester get a goal early on, then all of a sudden they're will missing their absolute desperate need to win a football match because they are going for a top four place might take over a little bit. And Everton's you know, shrug of the shoulders ambivalence about the end of the season, which we're going to be in mid-table, might also take over a little bit. And I think then it becomes a very different game. Uh, but because Everton get those two goals early on, I think they, the Leicester obviously knocked back a little bit and they struggled to get into the shrines of the second half, really. Or maybe until about, the other little spell in the midway through the first half. But, but Everton have got something to cling on to then. And all of a sudden it's, you know, those midfielders have got an extra yard. They want to put an extra tackle in. The forwards want to make that extra run to the channel, which they might not do if, you know, if we're 2-0 down or 1-0 down. So I think ultimately it's, it's a game conditioned by by what happens in, in those first 15 minutes. And, you know, just sort of echoing everything Hannah was saying, really, in regards to the performance. It was, you know, I think it's, it was one of them games where you sort of, you, you sat on the edge of your seat during it because, you know, we haven't got the ball. We're not really in control. We're already seeing the team because he's a freak equaliser, you know, Jordan Pickford letting the sorry, a freak um goal from from Leicester. You know, you see Jordan Pickford flapping around as well and, you know, Keenan to clear it off the off his um off his own goal line. But I think it's probably one of them you reflect on and I'm sort of watching the sky highlights this morning for this. And when you watch it back again, you sort of think, well, after that change where everything goes to a five man defence, they don't really have anything Leicester. You know, Perez has that one which Holder gets a good block on later on and they get a corner from it. But apart from that, it it did feel as though we were all under control. And I think one of the things that maybe has been a little bit missed in all this, and, if, you know, Angelotti's rightly got a lot of praise for, for that change and, and you know, recognising and bringing me and on and shutting things down. And rightly so, because it was the right thing to do at the time. But I think the players probably deserve a bit more credit than they're getting for adapting to that situation as well and being able to go through a back four. Let's not forget, they've been playing 4 4 pretty much exclusively since Carlo Ancelotti came in. That is the system they're all drilled in. It's the system he played every time he pretty much got out on the pitch for at least probably 80, 85 minutes of every game. Maybe there's been the odd time when one of the forwards has come off and we've gone to a 4-5-1 or we've brought the, brought the defender on and changed it a little bit. So I think for those players under pressure to be able to adapt to that new system and do it really well is, is a testament to them as well. And, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to say at times in, in, the, in all of the Everton careers, really, when managers try to do that and try to you know, activate change from the bench. You know, I remember uh, one example that stands out for me is Newcastle away where we lost 3-2. 
and Marcus Silva made the exact same sub. He brought Yerry Mina on because we were getting an aerial bombardment from Andy Carroll. I think I think it was and you know, Joe Linton up, up, up top for Newcastle. And it, we ended up seeing two goals and everyone's like, oh, the manager made the wrong change there. You know, what, what was he playing at? Why are you going so negative? And it was almost exactly the same game situation as what it was yesterday. So I think while Angelotti deserves a lot of praise for, you know, realising what the issue was, for making the change to an, enable us to become a better side, those lads on the pitch probably deserve a bit more credit than they're getting as well. Because to go from a... A, a four-man defence into a five-man defence when you're under pressure, when you're tired legs, when you've not got a great midfield in front of you either, or certainly not a, an energetic midfield, I think is probably a, a lot harder than it looks. So uh, fair play to everyone concerned yesterday. I think he did really well in that phase of the game. And a massive shout-out to Anthony Gorzard as well, by the way, yeah, we've got to say. Yeah. We're, yeah. We, the second stars. Don't worry, Hannah. We're going to get to him, I promise. <laughs> um, you, no, but, but you guys are absolutely right. I... I, I Matt hit on something that I think is is key there too, in that we do need to give the players credit because God knows they take a lot of the the, the grief uh, in scenarios like that. But I also think it does speak to something, uh, Matt. I know you and I have talked about several times before, and and I know Dave and I talked about this uh, quite a bit near the end of of Marco Silva, which was that. As much as we all kind of obsess about the tactical side of the game, we certainly um, we certainly also understand that being. I think we've come to understand that being a manager is oftentimes more than just that. It is about the ability to um, elevate players on a psychological level, um, to elevate players who are, we, we talk about, you know, elevating uh, average players into usable or good players, good players into great players, essentially getting more out of what you've got than someone else could. Um, and doing that, of course, requires good tactics, but it does also require, um, in, we say it all the time, instilling belief, uh, but it also, but it also, it, there's also something to be said for how impressionable footballers are. Are, really athletes are in general in terms of taking cues uh, from a tonal perspective from from mm. those who are leading them. Carlo Ancelotti just never seems to look it doesn't mean he never gets worked up but there's definitely a calm and a coolness about him. I've, I've got a working theory that the the turtleneck has really been the key to all of this. Um, not wearing a tie. I think he never needs to wear a tie again. Of course, conversely, I also wonder psychologically. <laughs> I also kind of wonder psychologically, too. And, and I don't think this explains everything. But I also think to that point that was made about, well, compared to Lester, we are kind of going through the, you know, we, we don't have the same pressure on us right now because there's really no expectations mm. at this point. And we can't, we, we, we joked about this before the restart, but I, I said something along the lines of what if we play a lot better? What if we play better without fans? And then how are we going to talk about this? Now we're not quite to that point. This is three games, but yeah, but we could think, be the kids. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that we are part of the equation for sure. But I, but I do think that I, I don't think it's insulting to the fans or the players to at least acknowledge that in these awkward circumstances, that not having the fans there, there's an element there that plays some part. It could be good or bad, but it's it def- definitely plays a part. But, um. Yeah, I I'm with you guys. I, I'm uh, I think Hannah. Sorry, Rob. Rob, just just on on that point, do you not do you not think that that might be something that's been taken into account with the way they're playing? Because if you if you set up like we did against Liverpool, 
and like we did against Leicester, where you're defending that deep. And, you know, let's be honest, it was sort of a little bit old-style Italian Catanaccio in, in the way Everton set, set up in those games. I think it, it's probably much more easy to play like that at home when there's nobody there. Because can you imagine Goodison Park in the derby or in that Leicester game yesterday when we're trying to cling on to a draw? Oh, yeah, or, cl- exactly. or cling on to a 2-1, you know. Everybody is dead nervous and shit in the kecks in those, in the, those last few minutes. But maybe just by virtue of the fact there's nobody there, it's something that Angelotti, being a, a pragmatic fella, has probably said, well, you know, these two teams are probably a bit, you know, are better better than, than Everton at the moment. Are we going to get a result here? Probably best by sitting in really deep and just trying to, trying to spring something on the break or, or from a set piece. And you can do that easy, more, more easily when you've not got fans there who are at Goodison Park and expecting Everton to be on the front foot of Goodison Park because that is the done thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's absolutely some something to that. And I would also add as well that we have to acknowledge that there are certain players who, you know, who who we have seen in their faces during those types of moments. We've seen that pressure uh, get to them. We've seen the anxiousness, the, the, the nervousness, whatever you want to call it, um, affect them, even if they would never acknowledge it. Um, now, again, this is not to say that anyone is suggesting that, well, the game is just better without fans. That's certainly not the, that's certainly not the truth. And, and it also points to the idea that, that these players have to be able to step up uh, when they're in front of a crowd and be able to, to, to get to these sorts of outcomes. But what I would say is that... Um, as bad as everything that's been happening in the world is, it is interesting that we may be getting, and we talk all the time, Matt, about, and Hannah, we talk all the time on this podcast about our desire for Everton to take those portions of the run-in in seasons where there are no longer trophies left to play for and to find some way to get something useful out of it to build a platform for next season. Well, there are no fans right now, and this will not be the same circumstance in perpetuity, obviously. But not having them there now might give us the ability to do the to, to do some of the things that we need to do, but also instill confidence in players that they can get results, you know, uh, now. And they may think once they've done it now, they feel like I can do this next season. I can do this again because winning really is a habitual thing, right? It's got to be something that uh, you do enough times to where it becomes instinctual as opposed to something that you have to kind of, uh, you know, manufacture as a one-off and every circumstance has to be right. Um, I, I do want to talk about in some player performances though. Uh, Hannah, you, uh, talk, you mentioned Michael Keane and, and um, I, I promised Matt we were going to talk about Michael Keane today because um, I, I said it very uh, succinctly uh, at the end of the match I, I had because of the time of day I had a work meeting I had to go to straight away right after the, the match so I didn't have t- a lot of time to spend on, on Twitter um, afterwards but um, you know the only thing I left uh, that game saying was uh, you know Michael Keane was clearly the man of the match yesterday um, not not even for reasons that were really hard to decipher I mean look he I'd it's it felt at times almost like Lester were aiming the ball at his at his head uh, because it just seemed like and really what was what was interesting about that 
was that they, that Michael Keane is, as we've all acknowledged and we've seen because, I, I, and I'm just talking about, let's, let's be honest and let's love, be, let's level, let's level with, with ourselves, uh, that the majority of his time at Everton has been kind of average to disappointing. Uh, some of that is out of mm-hmm. his control. There were injuries he played through. I'm not, I'm not saying that there weren't some issues, but I think what we found with Michael Keane is that he has some very specific physical limitations and some specific skill limitations. But one limitation he does not have is that he is an exceptional defender in the air. He is an exceptional guy at like, if you want to play the aerial game against him, you're playing really into his strength. Um, whereas, and we saw it a little bit at the end there, and I can't remember the exact moment. I think you guys probably remember this at some point. Vardy got him into space, and that's when he started to look like uh, the, the the proverbial giraffe on ice skates at that point, um, or roller skates, whatever, whatever. You <laughs> that. Um, I'm loving these. But, 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 I know. But, well, you know, it's front of mind. I love metaphors, and I don't know why. I'm, in a, I'm on an animal groove today. But Michael Keane, uh, <laughs> and again, that's not a cr- criticism of Michael Keane. It's just that when he is brought out into a, a, a to defend spatially, if you will. Um, that's not his strength. Um, I, I thought it was really curious. Uh, some of the ways in which less like Lester, were a completely different team. Once they brought James Madison into the game, I think he has a domino effect on everything. Not that he had his best game yesterday, but he certainly is a difference maker there. I, I, I thought that the, I thought Lester looked really sterile without him, but Michael Keane got his head on. I, I think that we saw the tweet today. Was it 12, 12, 12 12 headers. Call Clarence is the most in the Premier League this season. I think it played to his strength. So Matt said something yesterday uh, that I thought, man, that is the perfect setup for a discussion here about Michael Keane. And I want my, Matt to start first since I'm going to uh, obviously address what he said. And I, I have uh, used the handy bookmark feature on Twitter so that I could quote <laughs> Matt appropriately. Uh, Matt said uh, yesterday, uh, interesting one, Keane. If you put the pieces around him, he's a really effective player but always feels like a lad who can't quite cut it when a team tries to be more expansive. And so that's why I kind of brought up that Vardy moment. When, when teams try to get him out in space or to try to, you know, essentially widen the pitch a little bit against, uh, against uh, slow defenders, that's kind of the, the crux of what we've always talked about with, you know, needing not – you can't have two slow defenders. Like having Mina – and, and by the way, Mina is not as slow as, as Keen, but Mina is not fast. We all acknowledge that. But having two of them out there at the same time is problematic. Whereas if you have a complementary partner like a Holgate or a Zuma, then suddenly you can play a lot better. But you, you, Matt, you finished it by saying he's in an interesting position. And I would go a little further and say the club are in an interesting position um, with how they proceed in terms of recruitment and some other things depending on what you believe you're seeing with Michael Keane. So I want to start by saying this, and then I want to turn it over to you, to Matt, to kind of comment in terms of where your head's at. And then Hannah, I obviously want your insight on this too. Um, I've loved these last three games, but I'm trying to avoid doing the way the wind blows thing that we do as Everton supporters, which is, you know, a guy has a, ge- a good game or two or three, and suddenly we forget everything else. We forget the body of work. We, we, we begin to think that this short-term sample is representative of now a long-term strategy. I think there is a reason we have been so heavily linked with a bringing in a center half. Mm. Um, and I think that, uh, I think these are things we can't lose sight of, but as Matt points out, if you put the pieces around him, he's a really effective player. My question to you, Matt, to start this off, in addition to asking for your thoughts, is um, 
it's almost kind of damning with faint praise to say that if you put all the pieces around him, he's really effective. Because I we've talked before about this idea that if Keen has the perfect partner and there's the perfect formational setup, and I've joked that if the wind speed is this and there is not <laughs> precipitation yeah. and but 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 how many we can say that about a lot of players. Gilfi Sigurdsson is a really effective player with all the right pieces around him. So so tell me what you think about what we should make of three games of Michael Keane being solid given the relatively low bar that we have for him at this point. Well, I think that the, the one example I was going to use there, and you're sort of right, I think there are players that have been considered some of the best players in the world over the last 10 years or so are players who need the pieces around them to flourish. And the one the one that immediately came to mind then when I was thinking about that when you were making your point is Antoine Griezmann. You you look at him now at Barcelona and he is really struggling. He is really struggling. He didn't even get on the pitch until stoppage time the other night while Barcelona were chasing a goal. And if you think about his career at Atletico Madrid in France where he's been brilliant and there's loads of common things there. He's had a combative midfield behind him so he doesn't have to do much work. He's had a target man playing up front next to him, whether that be Diego Costa, whether that be Alvaro Morata, or at international level, whether that be Olivia Giroud, who, despite not playing loads of games at club level over recent years, was always picked by Didier Deschamps because he got the best out of Griezmann around him. So Anton Griezmann was a player who Atletico Madrid built a team around for a while, and they won silverware, they won the Europa League, they, you know, they were regular high high up in, in Spain. And France built a team that was sort of tailored towards him and, and Mbappe as well, obviously, although Mbappe was new on the scene still then. And he was the, I think he was the, scored four goals in the World Cup, including one in the final and was probably one of France's best players in the tournament. And you look at someone like him and you say, well, he is worth building a team around and making allowances for. So you look at, you know, look at the, the options France have in attack and, the, you know, players like Martial, Lacazette, Benzema, obviously, you know, Usman Dembele, Kingsley Coman, the list goes on and on and on. Nabil Fakir. And those lads didn't get in the team because they just wanted Giroud there to, to compliment Griezmann. So he is someone who's got that, got that ability and that, that quality that it's worth making allowances for in other areas of the team. Obviously, Michael Keane is not that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he's somebody who is transformative enough and decisive enough as a footballer for Everton to necessarily say, we're going to make sacrifices in the way we play. To but get, I see to what get, you're saying, though. To get, to I, see, get, I see the point you're to, making. To get, to get the best out of this lad. But I think what what he has shown is that he can be a useful player for Everton. I, I, I don't think, you know, that is... I think if you go back, you know, three or four months, if someone had said to you at this point that we get towards the end of the season, Michael Keane showing he can be a dead, dependable player for Everton, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I suppose the, the two issues we've got in that, when you when you're looking at it in a long term perspective, is that is is he going to want to be a lad who just comes in for games where we're going to sit deep and play re- and play really deep against the better sides of Goodson away from home? So you're probably getting about ten games a season, you know, because he, he's not great on the board. He can't play in a high line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I think that that's that's going to be an issue for him. And the other thing as well is that probably more so than any position on the pitch. You want stability from your centre halves. You want two two lads or three lads, depending on whether they're playing one what system they're playing, who know each other's games inside out and know where one's going to be when they're sweeping around. And I think if you're taking one centre back out to 
for one style of opponent and then bringing another one in for another style of opponent, it sort of destabilizes the whole thing. I think in an ideal world, it's like it's like that meme, isn't it? For a while ago, you you want to you want a fellow that can do both sort of thing. That's that's sort of what you want from 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 your centre backs. And you now Hannah mentioned Calvert Lewin before, and he very much looks like someone now. If you played him up front on his own, he'd be fine and effective, and he could do loads of loads of good things for the team. If you played him in a front two. He'll be fine and be able to score goals, and he can change and adapt his game depending on the opposition. You know, he can be a poacher, or he can be that fellow you need to give you an outlet on the break when you're not having much of the ball. Keane can't really do that, and it's nothing to do with his. It's, it's more to do with his physical limitations than anything. Obviously, he's not great on the ball, but he, he's not great on the turn, like you said, Rob. He, he struggles when Everton play a high line. So I think it's just. I think I think he's shown he could be a useful player in, in certain situations for Everton. But if we're going to become an expansive team that play out from the back and split the centre box, I mean, he might not become that under Angelotti. I don't know. He might have seen enough to say we're going to, we're going to change a little bit. But he's shown he can be a useful player for Everton. He can be a really important member of the squad. It's just whether he's happy with just being a squad player and not, not a player every week. And, you know, ultimately at the moment, we are 10th in the league. So maybe we shouldn't be looking that far ahead. But um, certainly through for thought moving forward. Well, and, and Hannah, I want to actually take something Matt said there I think is really it really is an interesting way in which we as fans process these performances because the word useful gets thrown around a lot or, and sometimes to some people, like I, I think when I think useful, I think to myself in the terms of what is most useful to what I want, which is um, Michael Keane uh, is abs- in the best case scenario here, I think he's absolutely a useful player. But to me, useful means that uh, I- I'm taking out uh, any factors in regards to ego or desire for him to start, his own desire to start. He's useful to me if I could, for instance, deploy whatever, deploy him whenever and however I want, um, or in Matt's scenario, in these particular circumstances. But he may not necessarily think that that's what he wants, you know, you may want to play. He probably like any of these, these guys wants to play uh, pretty regularly week in and week out. But useful is an interesting word to me as well, because um, what does it mean for Michael Keane? Um, are we seeing this as fans and thinking to ourselves that um, these three games are good. He's shown he's useful. And therefore we define that as he should, he should be the plan uh, next season moving forward. Uh, and a reason I, I bring this word up to you is because I thought it was interesting something you pointed out about Tom Davis yesterday. I thought Tom Davis looked better than he had looked in any of the other games. And I don't think it's a complete coincidence that it was in a scenario where he came off the bench because some players are probably better. Or no, I'm sorry. Some players are definitely better <laughs> in circumstances where they are not overly exposed. Whereas Calvert-Lewin, as you brought up, seems to be a player for whom you get more out of the more he plays because he has all of these other gifts that are useful to a, a good side. Um, you know, he, he doesn't really score when he's the lone striker, but he absolutely can score with there's two. But he does all these other things really well. Uh, the role he had to play in the second half yesterday is a perfect example of that. I think he's become an exceptional pass. Or et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I think Tom Davis might be someone who is useful as a squad player who comes in in certain scenarios off the bench, but is maybe overexposed as a starter. So my question to you, Hannah, is 
as you think about Michael Keane, um, and you think you said yourself he's been our best. You think he's been our best player the last few games. Does that really fundamentally sway your opinion in the long term about him being our full time starter? If, as Matt says before, that may prevent us from becoming a more expansive side and potentially then limiting our ceiling in terms of where we want to get under Carlo Ancelotti. So, no, I feel like that's the thing that you mentioned that we do straight away. We're very naive and straight away. We're like, oh, well, that's that's our ticket then. He's the person who's going to save everything. They're going to fix it. And I'm trying not to get like that from just seeing a few games anymore. You want to have at least, well, you want to see it at least to the end of the season if you can carry on with this. Like, okay, three games, but it's, as I say, it's only been three games where he's shown this. But as the type of player he is, I think it could be a confidence thing. I think linking back to what you said about not having fans there, I think that can be might actually be a huge impact on why we're seeing him because he is the type of player if you're in the angry in an angry Goodison is the type who does feel that and does get affected by that. So I think it could be a massive mental thing with him why we're seeing this, which obviously is great why we can't have fans. But if you're then building and relying on this player. Once we're all back in and we've got fans again, it could be a different scenario. As you said, it might instill if they're winning now because this is working, it's less intense and it might have an impact further down the line. Great. But you can't you can't hope for that. But no, I don't think that we should just be like, oh, okay, then got keen, we're sorted. We don't need to be looking elsewhere because that's the naive thing that we do. And then a few months down the line, it'll be why didn't we and it might also be he might be playing out of his skin now because he knows that he might he's fighting for his position it's been no secret that we'll we'll look him somewhere else after it's been said many a time so as much as uh, even i said he's been our best player we i think we all need to like calm down a bit take it has a been take, some take step back. yeah and like it obviously yeah liverpool, like against liverpool and leicester like two sides in the top three Grace, yeah, mm. but wait till you get to them scrappier games coming up. See if he is then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm, I'm not going to take away from the fact that I'm happy about him. But like, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> no, and, and then with with Tom as well, I think that he does always have to fight for the place, and it seems to be the case where he does start. We've all got something to complain about. And mm. for some players, it is an ego thing, but it's not the worst thing in the world. If you're an impact player, a, game, a player who can come on and a change save. change of pace guy. Yeah, yeah, change the game or save. Yeah, that's not a bad thing at all. Like, But it's an ego thing, isn't it? Especially when he's only 22 and the likes of Dom and Holgate, the same age as him, are always starting. So I think that's a different one with Tom as well, where it's if he was happy to be take on that kind of role where he can be a game changer and someone to rely on rather than somebody who 20 minutes in yeah shouting at, you should leave at the tender <laughs> so we can yeah. go either way with him well I Matt I want to I, I, I wanted to I'm sorry I just wanted to, to jump on something though that was said there by you at the end that that you know is Hannah and I are getting into kind of the the longer term vision but you said um it would be harder to play, be more expansive is the word you used. And I want you to expand on that a little bit uh, because uh, it'd be harder to be expansive with a center half who's not comfortable on the ball and lacks pace and, mm. you know, the, the things we've talked about, um, you know. Um, and generally my argument, for instance, if I if I have to choose between the two, and I, and I don't know that it's, 
I think there are a variety of, of nuanced factors as to why you make an argument for Yerry Mina or for Michael Keane. Um, but I generally will come back to the fact that Yerry Mina is much more skilled and athletic and comfortable on the ball, um, even with his limitations. Uh, but having said that, you said something about expansive. I, I want to touch on that because my question to you is, how do you define, like, I know what you mean by expansive, but you said uh, at the end there that maybe we don't, we aren't going to become quote more, more expansive uh, under Carlo. But I guess my, my, my concern would be that I, I sure hope we are because it does feel like we have to become a across the board, more expansive or skilled mm. uh, side to make the type of result we saw yesterday something that's a little more, I think the word I would use is scalable or, or repeatable. Uh, because yesterday was, I love the result, but I, I think that you could argue that six or seven times out of 10, we may not win that game because of, of how close we, we were living, living on the edge there a bit. Uh, if you can win games by a couple goals more often than you're giving yourself a chance to, to win more games, just period, you know, like you're, you're yeah, yeah. A finer margin there. So my question to you, Matt is, is do you think that we, do you think the plan is for us to become more expansive and how much do we need that in order to get to a top four, top six level? Um, it's difficult to say really. I mean, you look at, you look at Wolves at the moment and they, they are obviously in great form. Like, you know, from the two points off third place, as we said, you're recording this on, on Thursday night. And, I wouldn't necessarily. I wouldn't describe them as an expansive side, really. I think they sort of contain and keep it tight, and they, they use the ball well. They're quite defensive in the possession, and then they bring on Traore with half an hour to go, or make some smart changes, or they get a bit of quality, and then they win the game from there. They, they give themselves a platform in games, and it'd be nice if Everton sort of became a bit more like like that, really, where they're just in the game a lot more often on sixty minutes, whereas in the past it may not have been. But I suppose, I suppose, in the same breath, you can you can defend in a similar way Everton did against Leicester last night and be more expansive in how you use the ball on the counter-attack. You know, there were times in the game where our midfielders got the ball and just by virtue of the fact that neither Tickerton or Andre Gomez are the most mobile lads, it wasn't a case of them getting the ball and carrying it through the phases. It was getting the ball and slowing it down and getting wide. And then, you know, sometimes when we did get the ball forward, you know, Anthony Gordon used it pretty well in the main. Awobi was quite wasteful as this pass. And so if you, if you improve those areas, all of a sudden you can sit a bit, sit deep in those games and you get you get more of a foothold and you get more expansive by virtue of the fact you've got better midfielders who can use the ball better and get you from defending deep up the pitch and on the counter-attack. So maybe there'll be a bit of that. But I think the, the thing that's been commonplace throughout Carlo Ancelotti's career is his strategy has almost been that he's not really had a strategy. He's been a fellow. It's been a. It's been a. It's been a fellow that's you know adapted his team and his, his setup depending on the opponents. You know he's never really had a defined style at any football club he's been at. And you know while we've had that at Everton, maybe due to the limitations and maybe due to the fact that we are getting results by and large by the fact that we've got two really good centre forwards who understand each other's game really well. Behind that, he's not really having many options. So I don't know. I, I think we'll see. I think we'll see different. Setups, we'll see different ways of playing under Angelotti, and, and that, with that in mind, Keane can be a, a useful person in regards to all that. He can be a useful player, but I think in an ideal world, like I said, you'd, you'd want two or three centre backs, depending if we're playing a back three or a back two, where we can just say, right, just go. You know, you're going to play ten games next to each other, learn each other's game. You know, I think that's that's what Keane benefited from towards the end of Marcus Silva's first season, didn't he? You know, Everton mm-hmm. played quite a Everton played a really high line towards the end of that season when they were beating the best teams in the league at Gunston Park 
but he was comfortable in the fact that he had Kurt Zuma. He's probably right. the most athletic centre-back we've had since I've been going to watch Everton, probably along with someone like Sylvan Distan. His recovery pace was, was mm. phenomenal in his reading of the game as well. And he had probably one of the best holding midfielders players in the world in front of him as well, in Idris Gay. And, you know, I remember that one of the themes when we were doing those shows towards the, the, the back end of that season was that we were sort of saying, well, we'll keep a load of clean sheets, but... It's not really like the centre-halves are playing that well. It was like the whole team was working together, pressing. Jordan Pickford wasn't having much to do. Keane and Zuma weren't having to like chase back on the turn very often or getting caught on the counter-attack because the whole team was so functional. So I think it's, I think, I think it's, I think it's just good for Keane. And the, the point I was going to make earlier, which is, I think, the very fact we're having this discussion is, is a testament to the lad because I, I, you know, I think a lot of people would have expected him to come in after the lockdown with Mina injured, with the pressure on him to perform. Having not had the best of, of seasons, um, and for him to, to wilt and just be be the Michael Keane we expect, and you know, for us all of a sudden to be looking at the, the injury calendar and saying, "God, when, when Jerry back, we, we need him back on the side." But he has really stepped up, and, and for a player that, like Hannah said, has been renowned for having fragile confidence um, down the years, I think it's it's a real testament to his mental strength, and not something we really talk about in regards to Michael Keane very often. It's a testament to his mental strength. That he's almost been in this last chance saloon, and he's and he sees his opportunity. So, fair play to the lad, and, and, and maybe the fact he's come out and spoken about some of the mental health issues he's had and stuff like that might be a bit of a weight off his shoulders. I don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, yeah. but it, it certainly seems like he, he's happier to speak to the media. He's more comfortable speaking as an Everton player. He's more comfortable on the pitch, and, and hopefully, that candid, those candid conversations he's had about you know the stuff he's had to deal with off the pitch, his injuries, settling at the football club. I've been a bit of a light switch forum going on and, you know, long may continue in that sense. Well, and the question, I'm not going to ask it today because I want to put a pin into it and I want you, I want us to just kind of, I want to tease it because I think it'll be an interesting one um, depending on how things trend. But I think what will be fascinating is to see what we do from a recruitment perspective in regards to the center half, because if for some reason we were to continue to see solid a solid defensive line as we've seen. Um, like even yesterday, I I was worried that Mina after his long layoff would come in and and something would you know might happen. But even you know he, he just kind of went in there, did his job, and everything was very calm and collected at that end. And so the question I think for the end of the season will be. Um, would we be okay with these current top three center halves coming back to start next season with the idea that the person you add is a maybe like a I know we've been linked with that one like that 21 year old uh, Salisu or whatever who is, is more of like a 10 million pound buy who's 21 and he's more of a developmental piece whereas you know the other big link has been to Gabrielle and that's a guy who you're paying that kind of money for he's going to come in and be one of your top two or obviously top two or three I think you always have to have three three good center halves I think the question that I'm going to ask again and we'll we'll have you guys on at that point I'm going to ask again is how do we feel about our center halves going into the summer and what is it that we actually need but I want to put a pin in that because I want to get to him because I promised I would uh, Anthony Gordon is I, I I feel like lost in the shuffle of yesterday uh, and all of uh, the the talk of of Michael Keane and and the, just the result in general and and uh, some of the moments the Pickford moment that Michael Keane saved us from and that's for another day. Um, I don't want to lose sight of Anthony Gordon and I want to tell you why I'm so excited about him. Um, I'm excited about him in, as an idea in some ways because a he has homegrown talent. And I don't mean homegrown from just the fact that he's local, but I mean homegrown, which he is. That's he's also homegrown in that regard. But I also mean that 
Um, it, it cannot be overstated, especially when you start to actually pay attention to how much money you spend in the bottom line and, and how important those things are, especially in a climate like this, uh, where finances are certainly impacted and we're seeing that impact all over the country. And we don't even know really what that impact's going to be uh, fully understood. We don't, I don't think we fully understand it for maybe several months, but I don't think it can be overstated how big of a deal it is to have first team contributors who are potentially big contributors on low wages that you have developed yourself. Um, I think that that is, it's sort of like what they talk about, Matt, uh, as you know, Matt and I both follow the NFL. Um, well, the, the teams, we're, we're speaking uh, about the NFL on Team Talk Radio this morning and we're going to get higher uh, team as well. Yeah. Uh, because we'll, Matt picked on the fact I didn't look very... Um, that's the right word to use. Intrigued uh, and, by the and, conversation. Engaged, <laughs> engaged in the conversation. Don't worry, Hannah, I'm going to convert you. I'm quite an a, evangelist when it comes to the NFL. But uh, but in the NFL, like a lot of leagues, uh, you know, the NFL, because of the way their salary is structured without getting into the weeds, um, the best teams are those that leverage their young developed, controllable, cheap talent early, like through the draft in the case of the NFL. Um, because if you are just trying, you can't, there's a salary cap, so you can't just pay whatever you want and just sign every good player and win. It takes a combination of a lot of things. But for Everton to potentially, and this is what excites me about Anthony Gordon, one, the more time he's gotten, and I, and again, this is how injuries create opportunities. I've never been more relieved for Theo Walcott to be injured. Um and believe me, I've, I've, I'm always relieved when he's injured. <laughs> stuff, but I, not, not, not in a personal way, but I, I, it's just that Theo Walcott is. I mean, you know is, what it, is it possible to want someone to be injured and it not be personal? No, it's, you're right. Okay, I probably could have worded that more delicately, but let me put it this way. Um, there are certain players in our squad who, as I've talked about before, we already know what they are. Um, they are of a certain age and they really aren't part of the future in terms of, you know, they just aren't. And so, uh, you know, Theo Walcott is not part of any long term future at Everton, but Anthony Gordon, uh, Alex Awobi, like we've talked about the guys who, because of their age and a variety of circumstances, are part of the plan moving forward for a variety of reasons. Anthony Gordon excites me because the idea of having a young talent who you're going to theoretically control and, and have at the club for at least for the next four or five years hopefully longer intrigues me but also because it's not just because he's homegrown it's that he's actually looks like he's good I've already seen more flashes from him and you wouldn't see these flashes if he wasn't getting extended minutes which he's getting he is getting that time to and, and by the way I, even in the derby I didn't mind that he didn't do that much because I thought it, it just matters that he's getting minutes on the pitch because good players good young talented players even when they don't perform well, they are learning something that they will be useful for them at another time. And I think Anthony Gordon, you, you see the flashes. We saw all the videos of his under-23 performances. But, man, yesterday, uh, the, 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 he, is, he looks like that prototypical winger. He gets, he get, gets a one-on-one. -on -one, he crosses the ball. He either crosses the ball or, in this case, kind of laid one off and, like right on a platter for Richarlison. And I thought to myself, this is just a kid. And if we can find someone like him – and develop him and, and if he is part of the first team plan next season that's money we don't necessarily have to spend at that position and that is that is more money we can spend in central midfield or you know as first center half so I, all that to say I'm very excited about Anthony Gordon I'm buying stock in him I think he's got something I've you know 
I'm not going to compare him to other players who we've been, who we're constantly waiting to see more more from. But but he's he's exciting. Hannah, I want to turn it to you. How excited are you about Anthony Gordon? Uh, how much did you enjoy yesterday? Um, and do you do you feel like me that that he really truly might be part of the plan moving forward? Definitely. I think it was even, if you think back to a few months ago, there was a lot of the time where team sheets were coming out and people were tweeting all the time saying, why is Gordon at least not on the bench? It's something that people were very passionate about for a long time. And like I said in the derby, he might not have done much, but getting him on the pitch, getting minutes. And for the, for the lads, as you said, our homegrown talents coming on in a game like that. What a game to get confidence in and to get your name out in, getting your first start in the Merseyside derby. So I think that was key for him. And you know, like if you watched um, Carlo's presser, he's saying like he's standing out so much in training with all these players. You can even see when after he put that ball into Richarlison, the all all of them going over so made up for him because they obviously know that this nineteen year old lad is got it and is so passionate about being in the club. So I made I made up for him. Like if you what was it like won eight jewels or something yesterday, like in a second star wow. something, like he's making an impact on the pitch, clearly. And as you said, like we don't know what the state like we already weren't in the best financial state before COVID. We don't know what we're gonna be in afterwards. So it's great that we don't have to worry about another area, bring someone for so we don't have to worry about it in terms of the financial sense, but also because it's a homegrown talent, something that is always great to have in terms of the passion in the club. And he's nineteen. Do you know what I mean? And it's not just Blues who were talking about him, like all the pundits and everything since the Derby game. Although saying he didn't do that much, he's been, everyone's been talking about him since then. So he's clearly making an impact. What's not to be excited about? Yeah, I've loved his his Twitter page today. It's like, it reminds me, I remember when I first started like doing football, right? And every time I got like a positive comment on an article or like a a nice reply, I'd retweet it. And like going on his Twitter earlier on, earlier on today to find out, like I did a social post for the Blues to find out what, you know, trying to find out what his, his Twitter handle was. And I went through his page and it's just like every nice thing that anyone said about him from the game last night, like of any note, it's just, he just retweeted it. It was like, oh, that's, that's class. And he, he, must, he must just be... Luca Dean, Luca Dean does that. <laughs> yeah, Luca, Luca Dean retweeted one of ours today as well, actually. Yeah. yeah so, but how yeah. cool. Just on Gordon's page now, how cool. So he's in your 19 second stars. He follows 19 people, but has got 14,000 followers. So he's feeling very cool, getting all of his compliments what a, through. What a ratio. But he, he, must just, he must just be buzzing, mustn't he? He must just be walking around absolutely made up, you know. When you've got a manager like that coming in who shows faith in you immediately. And, you know, let's not forget, he did bring him on in a Premier League game away at West Ham earlier early this season when Bernard wasn't pulling his weight. And he had, he had faith in him there. He brought him on in the cup. I was sorry, I was Duncan, wasn't it? Forget about that. But, you know, Carlo Ancelotti's he's already shown he's got faith in him. And, you know, he must just be walking around with his, his chest puffed out today thinking, like, this is this is absolutely great. And as, as much as we always say, the sensible thing we always say when these things happen, you know, is we go, well, we don't want to get carried away about him because, you know, look what happened to you know, Rooney left. Um, Leon Osmond didn't quite live up to his potential. Barkley left, you know, broke everyone's heart. Tom Davis now was in the position of years. We shouldn't get carried away about these young lads. I mean, what, what's the point? Honestly, what's, what's the, the point? point? What's the point yeah. in all this? And we can't get excited about a young lad exactly. coming through the, the ranks and, and showing what he's shown early on. And I think what, what, I've, what I've loved about his performance so far, certainly last night more than the derby, is that coming through the youth academy, I don't think he ever would have been asked to do a job in a game like he's had to do in these first two games in regards to being defensively aware, in regards to his work rate, having to follow specific instructions, playing up against a higher quality of player. 
it will be completely foreign to him because all all the good things we see from him and all the you know at, at youth level. The games are pretty evenly matched. You know, there's not really teams that like dominating off 65, 70% of the ball. You're not effectively playing as a second fullback for large portions of the game. But he's he settled into that and just it's looked very natural to him. He looks very natural. And I think from all the things you read about him and and all the things you, you we've seen so far, you just feel he just looks like a good all-round footballer. And I know his like you know, potential best position is going to be as a number 10 or a split striker or, or playing off the left or whatever. But it seems as though no one quite knows what his best position is yet. Um, he can do a multitude of things. You know, you, you described him there, Rob, as you thought he's a classic winger. Like I, I, I see him more as somebody who's probably a number ten. He's been playing out wide, and I think the fact he's got that variety of attributes is great. Yeah, he can do a, he can yeah. do a few different things in a few different positions, and he's just not looked overall at all. Just very quickly, sort of caught the eye there on the corner of the screen. You know, you spoke about this last week. Phil Jagielka is about to come on for Sheffield United. Oh, is. It's far, it's far to still or horrendous, yeah. Um, it's still got yeah. no toner on it. Yeah, yeah, it's still pretty shocking. Yeah, he's having a word of Chris Wilder here on the, on the telly, but uh, but no, yeah, it's, it was it's, outraged. It's, it's great. Hannah was seeing, outraged as here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was great seeing. Um, it was great seeing him in the, you know in the team last night, and I think it would have been easy for after we won at Norwich from just sort of go right, we're going to go with Bernard again, and you know if, he, if he's having a, right. an ineffective game after the hour, um, I'll bring him off. But I think. Um, Finally, on this, Mosey made a really good point on the post-match last night in regards to sort of said, well, it, it's, you know, shite performances are getting punished now and you're not going to be in the team. You know, Tom Davis had a shocking first 45 minutes against Norwich. He was out the side. Bernard was ineffective, you know, in a game where he should have been doing a lot more and he was out the side. And I think there's culpability and responsibility now and, and Angelotti is ultimately, ultimately setting a, a high benchmark, which is a good thing. Yeah, so a couple things just on that exact point. And that to me is the thing that I've been screaming to the heavens for in regards to I, I don't I get that you have to manage players at the appropriate stage of their of of their career and development because of how old they are and you don't want to blah blah blah. But for far too long, we have had this mentality as a f- around, and it's not just as an Everton fan, but I think there's there there are certain kind of truisms in football that we're like, well, the player's a certain age, he's just not ready, and there's and you can only play him ten minutes here, ten minutes there, and that's it. I'm I just don't be, I don't subscribe to that. I'm I am of the belief that if a player is talented, you develop him by playing him, but you accept that he will struggle and you play him anyway. Mm. And you accept that now granted, we're such a young side that I think we can do that. We're also in a position where we're not risking losing a trophy by playing Anthony Gordon at at, at 19 and I grant you all those things, but um I I I think that Carlo Ancelotti to your point, Matt, is establishing a culture of accountability that says um I don't really care about what you're making every week i don't care how old you are um if you are the best player you will play and to me we have been missing that for so long because how many times have we gotten on this show and asked uh, over the years why is this guy continue to keep his place and we all end up having we fill it in we fill the unknown in with our own speculation about contracts and wages and, and a variety of other things it's refreshing to see him play a young play uh, a young player just simply for no other reason than the fact 
that Anthony Gordon enough, Gordon is good enough to be playing. Mm. Um, so I think that that part is is certainly the key. And and finally on the winger thing, I I think it was just that moment he had yesterday just felt like a winger moment to me. But but Matt makes a really good point. We've talked so much about the fact that we're tired of of players who who are one dimensional can only play one particular position in one particular system. Anthony Gordon to me is the 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 quote modern dream of of players who are multifaceted can play in multiple positions and that I can say to myself well Anthony Gordon is so good that regardless of the formation we'll find a place for him because he can impact a football game and that's what excites me about him I want to end guys to talking about the title win uh briefly I know, but I don't really want to talk about the title win. I want to talk about the aftermath. And <laughs> specifically, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the word narrative. And I say that because so much of how many of us who don't live inside, don't live uh, uh, in Liverpool, uh, don't live, you know, close by, sometimes our, our experience is filtered through what we see on social media and what we hear and reaction and so on. Um, I'm going to basically make one statement and I want you guys to comment on it because I think you've got thoughts. But beyond the health concerns, beyond the ridiculous, fa- the ridiculous uh, um, condemnation that Mayor Anderson came, uh, Mayor Joe Anderson came under for even suggesting that this would happen and then it happened. And then he still got people pushing back and saying, just because you're right now, you're smug about it. It's I, I won't even that all of that's ridiculous. But mm. I think the thing that from far away really struck me was that 30 years on, they're here. This is what they've been obsessing about and wanting. And the title win itself, and granted, I'm sure we'll recycle it again when the parade comes around, whenever that happens. But this 30-year wait culminated in about 12 to maybe 24 hours of focusing on the title win. And it seemed like it only took 24 hours for the story to change into the ridiculous events uh, at, at both Anfield and 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 uh, Purehead, yeah. Purehead. Yeah. And, 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 and I just thought to myself, that's so them. Uh, but, but also just that you managed to take this singular accomplishment that you've been waiting on forever and you kept it the main story for a day. And that, that speaks to the fickle nature of, of our, our attention deficit disorder as, as consumers of the game and social media. But I also frankly think it speaks to the fact that while, I know we're going to hear and we've already heard, well, it's not everyone. It's just a minority. I'm sorry. When you see former players there, Jamie Carragher was on site. Don't don't give me this. There's just a few stray bad eggs because I'm I in society. I'm growing sick of the argument that, you know, it's just one or two people. And, and it's it's <laughs> that 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 just does not apply to me. But I, I was amazed that they could not keep it together long enough to let the focus just simply be on the players, the accomplishments etc and they wanted to go light some shit on fire so um hannah i know you had thoughts so i want to get to you and then i'll let matt talk about it as well matt because i know you had some strong thoughts on this as well what is it uh, as someone who's not there what's it like right now because it it feels like people have already kind of moved on from the title win and in terms of of the constant chatter about it because this has over overwhelmed it so much but t- tell me how you feel about how things are how it's being received there what you th- think about the other night and so on 
It's so strange because I thought that most people would have the reaction to me the next day of just being so embarrassed to be from the city. Like, it really was a moment where, from the seconds I went on Twitter, I just felt so embarrassed seeing people throwing fireworks at a well-housed site, seeing people doing drugs and video in it. Like, the state that it was left in, it was just awful to me. But I thought everyone would be like that. So then the fact that a lot of people have then, as you said, saying, oh, it, was, it, it wasn't everybody, it's just a few bad eggs, for one already annoys me, ridiculously, for two, everyone completely forgot about the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic, which is just, that hasn't even been mentioned by anybody, which does me head in. But it's the fact that, like, so I was quite vocal about this, saying that, like, it's disgusting the way that the pier got left in terms of litter, like all that um, laughing gas canisters and everything. It was just ridiculous. And I got a message of somebody saying, um, be better, not bitter. And I was like, right, we'll take this back a second. I was like, I'm talking about this since the state that like the city's been left in and how embarrassed that we've been made to feel. And he was like, it was a bit of litter. Um, it's ba- it happens after every festival and event. It's just blues trying to tarnish what LFC have done. So I don't know how that's been switched around, that it can. But for me, it's that annoying thing that, like, as someone who is Scouse, we're all very vocal about the fact that we're a very socialist, slaver, stronghold city where we all look after each other and we're Scouse, not English, very different to the rest of the country. Mm. That wasn't that at all. And if that, them videos, as I said this to Dave Matthew in the week, if them videos were from, like, Millwall or something and it was an England game, We'd be going crazy about the football hooliganism, what happened that night. But because it happens here, you know, it's fine because they were all just having a laugh. And the fact that you've got one of Sky's main journalists, like, let's be honest now, Jamie Carrigan and Gary Level are the face of Sky now. And Carrigan's there having a bevy on the pier heads with everybody. It's just ridiculous. And that's been completely swept under the table. But I just don't understand how people have... So I think it's been forgotten about personally with you saying, does it feel like the title sort of became secondary to this? I think that all this has actually been forgotten about. By like Tuesday this week, I haven't seen people as angry. The only thing I've seen is like local radio stations and that's sharing pictures of people that the police want still. Um, so I think it's actually gone away quite quickly. Mm. But it's, we'll wait till the COVID case numbers start uh, to trickle in in the next week or two. But then that's the that's the annoying thing because I've seen a lot of journalists, which is just so wrong that they could even be saying things like that, saying, "Oh yeah, but like it's bound to happen after Dominic Cummins did that, and after if the government not once they did that, people were bound to listen." You can have six people on sides with you at the moment. Why do you think that that's justified just because it's football and there's a celebration that you can be in thousands? Like, why have I not been seeing family members for months For because Liverpool have won the title? You can be in your thousands. And I've been dead fair with this. I've said I understand why people went outside Anfield. It was an overwhelming emotion. I wouldn't have went personally, but you can sort of say, right, okay. 30 years, the circumstances, the 96 minutes, all them nice things around it, okay that happens but to then organize something for the next day in masses is just ridiculous and I was saying to Matthew there was a girl on my Instagram I saw a lot of people who couldn't tell you couldn't name you to start an 11 for Liverpool who were at the pierheads but that's fine because it's a celebration for the city whatever but I saw a girl put a video up and she says the perfect Glastonbury replacement last night 
it was getting treated like in a rave. So let's put it as bluntly as it is. When there was all illegal raves happening in the for- in the woods and everything in Kirby, it was stated for what it is in the news, an illegal rave. But there was the same amount of people on the pier heads all drinking and doing drugs. So why is that not getting caught in a legal rave? Because that's what it was. Bars and clubs are still shut. Everyone was drinking in the thousands. It was an illegal rave. And there's no other way that people should be going about it. But- my, my favorite video, <laughs> Hannah, was the video of the kids snorting the coke off of the coppers. Will, yeah, at, they've, the they've had their eye wipes. That's getting circulated today. So it's been screenshotted their faces. One lad with white all over his nose. That video is getting circulated all over social media by the police Amazing. now wanting to question them. Out. But just, like, I, I get why people want to go out and, like, do whatever and celebrate. But to be videoing it, then, and there is videos of people queuing up to do, to fire a firework at the live building. Because people it has a bit of blue around it. The lad getting the kids to do it as well. His own, it's his own on, child it's on your badge. No matter what lights up on there, if you've gone there to congregate and celebrate because that's actually on your kids, then why would you then throw something at that? It's just for me, it was very embarrassing and it goes against everything that Scousers make up that they are. Yeah, I think 100%. I totally agree with pretty much you know, with all of what Hannah said there. It's, it is ridiculous. And I think that the point you make about the England fans is a good one because I think that football fans from this city look at those videos of England away at tournaments or, you know, the ones from when they were in Amsterdam recently and they were throwing stuff at people on the canal. And we, we, we sort of look at them and think, aren't they dickheads? But then the other thing we like to think is that we're, we're better than that. People from this city and, and this region are, are better than that. They don't act like that when they go to go abroad on European trips and you know, they don't make those stupid videos where, you know, where, where those sorts of things happen. And... <laughs> Watching that at the weekend, it was very much a case of like, well, this this feels like it's very much in England. You could you could put this in a square in any major tournament, and you'd expect this from England fans. Yeah, you know, and like uh, just and Matt, one that you... quickly. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. When we see them videos, okay, it's awful that there is like people having fights and throwing chairs and that. But these are from fireworks and everything. Mm. Like it's a level up, and nobody seems to be like acknowledging the fact that it is mm. a level up yeah. of hooliganism. Yeah, and, and Matt, I think oh, oh, I'm sorry, Matt. I was just going to say you you'd commented on on this precise thing. I can't remember if it was one of the group chats or whatever, but that while England fans or when this happens in London or whatever, it just kind of gets forgotten about. That this ends up becoming a stick to beat uh, northwest the Northwest and specifically yeah, Liverpool, especially with, the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's yeah. the stereotype that national papers and national news like to drag Liverpool through the mud for, yeah. it's it fits the scout stereotype perfectly, something that we all try very hard to remove ourselves from. And then, unfortunately, a minority of people make that see that well, that is the case because they can't even handle themselves for 24 hours. Yeah, and this this is something that's going to be... It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a negative impact on, on all football. I mean, all, all of us are, yeah. Even I'll include you in this, Rob, as well. Match-going Evertonians. We're, we're all match-going <laughs> Evertonians. And we all we all want we all want to improve the match-day experiences. And there are ways that the, the match-day experience can be improved. And there are people who are actively trying, trying to do that. And that's great. But whenever stuff like safe standard is brought up now, whenever stuff is brought up like the prospect of having a drink and you see that having food and you see all these things the fans want and, you know, Fans should have really because they should be treated like normal human beings who go and watch something. It, it, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, really. But the powers that be who've sort of been against this and been knocking these ideas back, and you know, for, for certainly years now, they just got sort of point out and go, "Well, well, look at that. Look, look, look at what, look what, look what loads he's behaved like. Um, you know, celebrating a title win. You broke social distancing rules. You 
named numerous fireworks and the, the most iconic building in the city. Police were rushed, people were beaten up, you know. And, and you just sort of got to sit there and go, well, oh yeah, actually, I suppose that you know you're right. And it's it's I think the the, the issue the, the issue I've had with it mainly, I think it's I I was I was dead disappointed to see what happened at Anfield as well. And people who listen to us regularly will know I've got a personal interest in this because my wife's a doctor and she comes home to tell us me about the, the state the NHS is in and out, you know, the, the, the negative impact this is having on so many people. And it's a bit more raw, it's a bit more personal. So I think that's one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about it. But the other thing, which I just can't get my head around, is that they were all so aware of how bad it was to break social distancing and to go out and congregate in a big group because they all went mental at the prospect of it happening when Joe Anderson brought it up a few weeks ago. The, 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 amount, of, the amount of people who dug the heels in and went, oh, how, how dare you suggest that we would be so selfish as to go out and potentially infect our fellow people in this city because our team has won the... the I, think, I think Tony Evans said as if people would go out leaping around like lemons into the street you know, and, and spitting at each other or whatever to go and do that sort of thing. So they, everyone knew, everyone knew that the, the prospect of this. But all of a sudden, it's like, well, now we've won it. Who gives a shit? Let's just all get down there. So I think that was bad enough for me. Obviously, what happened on the Friday night was, was even worse. But I think we spoke about this on Subs Weekly earlier in the week, and I thought I thought Mike was absolutely spot on in what he said in regards to the way in which it's been covered afterwards. You know, I was sat there on Thursday night scrolling through Twitter, seeing loads of videos of people at Anfield, seeing loads of people celebrating. So the Liverpool Echo sharing it. See, mainstream journalists like um, Simon Hughes, uh, Rory Smith was another one. Uh, oh, Dominic Rory King was down Smith. there. And yeah. there wasn't a single person who said, you know, this shouldn't be happening. Get over. Yeah, go, I go, saw go. somebody... Sorry, oh, I saw I'm somebody sorry. tweet um, so at a local station saying, oh, so you're um, promoting this? And they said, no reporting. But I'm sorry, if, like, if you're sat at home and see that going on, you're going to go, well, I'll go and get some cans and go down there. It was so irresponsible yeah. that they were the, promoting that to go. And I think the fact that none of that happened on the Thursday night led a lot of people into thinking who didn't go on the, the Thursday, like either, either I've missed out on that there, so I'm going to go and celebrate with my mates outside today at the PR, or to think that this is okay. This, you know, this is something that we might be allowed to do now. So, and just final thing on this, I think obviously every fan base has got their idiots and I've got no doubt that if Everton were in this situation, we would have had some people acting like dickheads and, and breaking social distancing rules as well because dickheads, you know, are at every single football club. I think that, that, that's fair to say. But I think the issue that, that we sort of got with Liverpool is that as soon as anything happens that the supporters do that's negative or anything negative around the football club, there is a rush to defend them and justify them and do mental gymnastics to make it seem like this is okay or, or not as bad as if as it you know as it comes out. You know, there was pieces this week about you know why it's not entirely Liverpool supporters' fault. There's, there's a reluctance <laughs> to take there's a reluctance to take full ownership whenever anything goes badly with the club or badly with the fans. And I think what that narrative does, and it's a narrative that is sort of built up by the fact there is so many people in the media affiliated with Liverpool Football Club. When that narrative is there, it's added to, and it's added to, it's added to. A lot of people sort of probably go out and think, "Well, I can do whatever I want because you know this is you know people defend this, and I've got people saying actually it's, it's not it's not that bad all this." And I think that's why we maybe see this sort of thing happen with them, maybe a little bit more than others. No, I, I think you guys have have definitely uh, eloquently uh, articulated that. I I, I think Mike Diash also made, made the point as well that 
on to what you just said there, Matt, that yeah, any group of fans are going to have some segment that might do this, but it was the reaction to it or lack of reaction to it that's really the most insulting, especially given a the the pearl clutching uh, indignation that occurred when it was merely suggested that this could happen, and then when it did happen, the complete lack of any willingness to critique the you know the people that went down there and say, look, uh, I'm and by the way, I I, I to their you know I, I know that there were this is not that that reds or red fans are not a, a monolith that there were some saying you know I'm embarrassed about this I I don't think people should have gone down there etc. But to your point, Matt, uh, to see not only. Uh, the 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 lines not only blurred but just completely given up by some of the media cheerleaders uh and 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 sycophants essentially for for Liverpool to not even to to not only not report it but also to then justify it after the fact is is really a kind of a weird sort of group think that takes over and becomes toxic and and I think that um, yeah I, I will say one final word Rory Smith is one of those reporters who likes to put on the reporter hat when it is expedient for him to justify doing something like that but then you take it takes you about thirty seconds into his timeline to see what a what a what a a super fan of that club he has become over over the 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 period of time that he's been covering them it's it's fine to say he was there to report on it but if you're going to report on it also acknowledge as opposed to like you said hannah acknowledge what you're actually seeing there acknowledge it within the context of the world in which these Mm -hmm. events are taking place but what rory smith largely did and i saw his twitter feed that night was take really cool hd photos of the of the cop and and of the of all the the red fireworks and make it and really was glorifying it but but was able to and that's one of the that later and say oh but i wasn't glorifying it i was just showing you how cool yeah. all this stuff looked and that's <laughs> one of the reasons reporting. that's one of the reasons probably why rob the people didn't look like that and i think certainly liverpool echo fall into this didn't tell people to go home because if every video they put up, if you went onto the comments below, it would be some media outlet from somewhere saying, "This is a great video. Do we have your permission to use it on our right. feeds?" And that in turn gives the you know the the echo and other journalists you know more reasons to keep publishing it because it's good for them because their content gets shared everywhere, Clickbait. and all yeah. the other all the other outlets who use it as well get people to their page as well. So it's it's like a perpetuate self perpetuating cycle. So I think when you're getting that traction, you know, from a self from uh oh! You've gone. Oh, Matt! I think we lost you. <laughs> yeah, it's he- Matt's Matt's headphones <laughs> finally died, and that was God's way. He was of saying, in his groove there as well. He was. He was. <laughs> he was on a roll, but you know, this his battery dying was 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 God's way of saying that this episode of the Kickabout has finally run its course. <laughs> Matt. Hannah, uh, we will continue this later if we need to, but uh, great, great discussion today about Everton and about uh, obviously the the quote celebrations at the end of uh, yeah, last week. Quote but, no. celebrations. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Guys, it's been fantastic this week. Just a reminder again that uh, com- coming up uh, this weekend, of course, we will have uh, loads more content for you. We've got mailbag coming up. Uh, we had a great post-match discussion yesterday. Um, we'll have the weekly. We will have um, um, subs weekly. We'll have all these other things coming on. The 11s. Matt is probably trying to, you know, sign, you know, do sign language to tell me something right now it's important but let me assure you that we have got loads of content because we are all about content 
Change your vehicle's oil before your summer road trip and save money now with Pennzoil and O'Reilly Auto Parts. Right now, get five quarts of Pennzoil Platinum Full Synthetic for just $22.95 after mail-in rebate. Save money and protect your engine against sludge and wear with the synthetic oil change. Stop by your local O'Reilly Auto Parts today or O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Sports Social Podcast Network. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.